Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Lord willing, over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be talking with Ryan Hurd, a fellow colleague here at the Davenant Institute, and perhaps one of the most significant voices in the ongoing debate over the doctrine of God. And we want to talk about the topic of the doctrine of God. Uh, Ryan is currently teaching a class uh, for Davenant Hall on the different senses of scripture. And if you ever wanted to take a deep dive into understanding your Bible better, I would encourage you to check out future classes by Ryan. So brother, thank you so much for being here. Yes. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. I suppose one way we could uh, get into this discussion is for me to lay out some uh, basic personal struggles when I have been thinking about this topic and trying to discuss it. And maybe some of our listeners will resonate with that. Um, so some biographical stuff coming out. When I was growing up in various evangelical denominations, the word God was used in a way that painted a picture in my mind of a fatherly figure uh, that lived in heaven. And while this is not necessarily a bad thing, it has presented difficulties for me in terms of understanding what God is as I mature in my faith. And I think that language is the central hurdle that I cannot seem to get over. As a good reformed confessionalist who's been properly catechized, I have been given a series of adjectives that seek to articulate what God is. God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I think, Ryan, that the question that's been slowly forming in my mind after being given this grammar is, well, what does all of that mean? <laughs> uh, especially given the rise of controversy swirling around this question right now, I think it is perfectly ordinary and also necessary to strive for clarity and understanding what we even mean when we say God or Yahweh or Jehovah. God is described in a lot of ways in scripture, and this is the most sacred question that we can, as finite and ignorant creatures, try to humbly answer. Hopefully, we can offer our very meager thoughts to try and bring some of that clarity to our listeners. So, Ryan, let's talk about language and about the names we have used for God and what those names and what that language are seeking to communicate. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I resonate with a lot of those struggles and thoughts because I have gone through that process and i think i can say maybe come out a bit on the other side uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel as it were going through that uh tension and struggle and frustration is uh is actually a, a really natural part of the process of coming to grips with god is recognizing that you are not going to come to grips with god and actually if you do you're not coming to grips with God. So <laughs> kind of starting off with that basic posture, which is uh, universal to the entire Christian tradition and, and really every uh, monotheistic religion that's uh, of any significance, whether it's Jewish or Muslim or, or even other religions as well, recognizes that when it comes to the divine, we do not know what he is. Uh, we will perceive him when we arrive at him, but here in this life, 
we are in the midst of creatures and we are able to consider creatures and then say things about those creatures with respect to God and their relationship to God. And when we come kind of along the back end of somebody who has done that, whether in the tradition, reading the fathers, the high medievals, or reading certain confessions, and we come on the back end where words have been formulated after thoughts have been had and considerations have been performed, it's easy to approach words of either scripture or confessions or what have you as though the next step or the immediate step is to try to squeeze out of those words, the inherent meaning therein. Mm. And that's really fundamentally not what the entire tradition uh, orients itself towards doing when they read other theologians or when theologians themselves write and then expect readers to uh, adequately apprehend what they mean to say what we have to do when we come to words is recognize that words are signs of our ideas to speak with someone like thomas aquinas he would use here the term raciones aristotle would use the term passions the passions in the soul which is basically the receipts or the receptions in the mind in the, in the brain and then up into the intellect of creaturely reality as such so words signify our ideas, which have been formed and shaped and constructed, bearing upon things, creaturely things. And when we get to language with respect to God, it's a bit more complicated, but still the same basic structure, namely words signify our conceptions, which have been firstly formed by creatures, creatures which have been thrust into our mind and kind of marked in the back of our skulls. And then we have reflected upon those marks with respect to God. And we've performed various intellectual acts or movements of the mind and these sorts of things. And then we've tried to represent that or reiterate that in external speech to communicate that to others. Mm. So when we're doing basic catechism or when we're giving the most, most basic uh, words or language that someone should say, even without having conscious apprehension or, or have anything bubbling up there in the mind, they're just kind of mouthing the words. What we're trying to do is to shake their body, to shake their soul in the same way that reality has sh shook the mind of the author. And mm. words can do that well, or words can do that poorly. When it gets to language with respect to God, we have to be oh so careful, especially when we reckon with the fact that many, many, many of the things that we need to be shook with are actually intellectual movements away, or what we call negations or negative names. And very frequently, these actually have been converted into seemingly positive names, like you mentioned the Westminster chapter one, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, etc. Those are all negative names in actual fact, even though they might seem positive if we were to just consider the words themselves. So as we unpack the, the proper intellectual movements and bearings and habits of thought that are in these types of words, we have to be aware of those issues. And that's really what the tradition of divine names historically has tried to do in a very, very, very precise 
and uh, conventionally agreed upon manner as well. So we, we mean spirit, and that is a negative judgment of composition of body and, you know, body and soul. Like that's what it is. That's the reality signified is a negative act of mind said to composition within creatures of body and soul that has been verified by what God is. And we say that by saying spirit, things like that. And that's, again, what the tradition of divine names tries to do. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's very helpful. One of the things I think that we're going to try to do is is work through some of the the, the basic distinctions that, that you I know that it, for, for those who are listening, you should know Ryan teaches classes on these things and uh, uh, he teaches excellent classes on these things. And what you're getting in these sessions is a sort of uh, 30,000 foot in the air uh, drive by of some of the, I think the basic uh, distinctions uh, that we want to get to. But before we, we, we get to those formalizations, maybe it's helpful to anticipate a, a potential reaction already, uh, which I think is, you're you're right that kind of kind of basic to the monotheist tradition, uh, classically certainly when it's philosophically formal, formalized, it is this claim that we never uh, 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 we never penetrate in this life all the way into the divine essence in the mind uh, that we don't we don't we don't know what God is, um, and understandably in a in a in a theological sort of chaotic zone that has lost a lot of the grammar and lost a lot of what's, why, like precisely what is being said in saying that, that can sort of trigger a bunch of, are you saying we don't actually know God? You know, God is love. Do we not know what God, you know, that sort of thing. And even I, I remember, you know, one of my own, my own mentors, Dr. Frame, John Frame, you know, I remember him, this is one of the things in his doctrine of, and I appreciate many things in frame, but I know one of the things he'll he'll say is, uh, I think he disagrees with Bavink on this. Bavink is kind of adopting the, the classical grammar. Bavink says we don't know the essence of God. And I think that's Bavink sort of interacting with a scholastic heritage he's received. Uh, and frame sort of pushes against that. And I think for reasons, uh, I think for reasons I agree with, but I think probably because there's a misframing of exactly what is being said uh, when we say we don't know the essence. So, and so I guess uh, maybe one way of, of putting all that into a question, what we would ask is, uh, what do you think is perhaps being missed when somebody has that, that pull away from we don't know the divine essence? What is there probably going on inside of their brain that you're not saying? And what are you maybe, uh, what are you actually saying? Yeah. Yeah, that's very, very important uh, to understand. And it is uh, genuinely uh, an incredibly difficult issue to explain to lay people. And I don't mind saying that. I always feel that we should be very honest with lay people, uh, non-professionals. Uh, this is in no way uh, a pride thing, in no way uh, folks standing up uh, top of the mountain saying look at you little peons down there that don't know what you're talking nothing like that it's just being honest that their questions are are good not only good but they are betraying the fact that they have apprehended reality and are having deep intuition which is why you get a rise out of people when you say no no, no you don't know what god is and then they're like whoa yes we do and then they get really ticked off with you well, that's because they have genuine intuition 
on the fact that you do know what God is and haven't actually apprehended you know, what is being said and what is not being said in these types of things. So, but with that said, having those genuine intuitions and then being prompted, rightly prompted and, and admirably prompted to ask deeper probing questions to gain more and more understanding of, of these deeper issues. I always feel that one should be really honest up front with the fact that the explanation is not really something that a lot of people can wrap their minds around because it's, it is quite difficult. It doesn't mean we can't make progress in doing so. One of the basic things that maybe we could say initially is the fact that on the one hand, we do know things that are similar to God. And in that respect, we do know what God is. Hmm. So these are the names which designate with us and among creatures, what we call the simple perfections. Things like wisdom, goodness, and others of that sort. Love also falls into this category. These are things in the created world that are purely like what God is. And, and, and what we mean by that is that what these things are, these creatures are, they're actually accidents in the technical mm -hmm. sense of accidents versus substance in the Aristotelian categorization. What these accidents are, when, when, when I say understanding, when I say wisdom, when I say goodness and love and all things like that, uh, that thing outside my mind and not the word, but the, the creature itself is like a pure mirror, perfectly filled up with light and only light and nothing shading that light, which is not what God is. Hmm. And so when you apprehend that thing, and then you think of God therein, you are understanding what God is as in a mirror, hmm. which is where the distance is coming in. Hmm. And when we start marking out that distance in the fact that, yes, God is like this, but God is not actually this thing here that I'm looking at, that's kind of the bottom shelf place where we start to say, no, we don't know what God is in this life, only know what God is not. Because when we look in that mirror, and we perceive God affirmatively, God is this, and what we're really saying is God is like this, then the mind is rebounding, or at least it needs to consciously, if you're a good theologian, and this is what we try to teach lay people, especially in the negative names of God, which is how negative and positive names interact and enlace and are not contradictory to each other or intention to each other, but they're different moments or movements of the mind or habits of thought. When I look into the mirror and see God positively therein in this pure light, then I reflect and move back up into God, recognizing and measuring the amount of distance between that thing that I'm seeing and what God actually is. Mm -hmm. And there are many, 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 in fact, there are innumerable types of negative judgments that mark out that space of distance. And the best theologians, the professional theologians, are performing that entire length of removal at every moment of affirmation, even if they're not telling you that. And usually they're not telling you that because you don't need to know and you can't handle it. Uh, what they're trying to do is invest you with the positive thought attached to the negative thought and pulling you up the mountain back to God. And so they're allowing you to rest in the analogous thought that you're having 
and you are understanding what God is, but at the same time, they're heaving you back into God in a deeper and more potent fashion. If we look at other creatures, we call these names designating mixed perfections, things like reasoning, laughing, when we say God has hands, when we say God cries, when we say God is angry, there's lots of things that people think that God is that God actually is not. These are what we call the mixed perfections. And those are things that are not pure mirrors, as it were. There's shade covering the light. And so part of it, that light is genuinely similar to what God is, but because it's always cut, as it were, uh, with shade, you can't affirm the whole thing of God. Therefore, there has to be negation into that. We can talk about that in a minute. But this is something that's very, very important to understand, especially about the Christian tradition and about the work of the theologian, the professional theologian, the work of the fathers, the work of the high medievals and the scholastics and what they're trying, what, what you should understand they're doing to you. Uh, so maybe you can encourage it to happen in your own self as you read other powerful theologians. What they're trying to do is to get you to participate in their movement of mind and thought. Hmm. And so I always like to think of it in terms of uh, like, like throwing a boomerang. If you, if you consider someone like Thomas Aquinas, who was quite possibly and perhaps probably the best theologian who's ever lived, Thomas is performing like consciously performing in every waking moment of thought and certainly whenever he's writing this entire movement of mind surveying the entirety of the creaturely order and saying yes no yes no yes no yes no in the exact way of intellectual movement that you have to do at every single moment and he is possessed of that he is that he has become that that is his second nature he has all those habits of thought and so when he says God is something, whether he says God is love or God reasons or God understands these simple and mixed perfections, which are different and handled differently, what you and I receive just in this moment of affirming love by participating in Thomas Aquinas's thought is Thomas's entire being pulling us back into God with all of the long series of negative judgments that you and I maybe are unconsciously making because we're participating in his mode of knowledge. So Thomas is, as it were, standing up the top of Mount Sinai, waiting for God, understanding that the highest knowledge of God that you can have while in this life is the knowledge that God is not. Hmm. That's the highest moment is where you're standing in the cloud of unknowing in Mount Sinai. He's standing up there and he's throwing boomerangs down. And we're catching them and being carried back up. And every footstep of that journey is being enacted into the mind. And uh, that's, that's really what these theologians are doing to people as they read them and, and what you want to develop in yourself. So the, move, the, the tradition of divine naming slices up all the footsteps of that journey and teaches you to enact that footstep, that foot movement with the mind and the soul, such that by the time you have all of that made in you and are performing that consciously and more strongly and you're making that entire journey up and down, up and down, up and down, and knowing at every place to pause and what 
happens there when you pause. And the evaluation of those paused moments of affirmation on the scale of negative judgments that you're actually making surrounding them, then you just sit around and talk to people and they participate in your knowledge and you invest them with those similar movements of mind. This is what it means to teach, right? Participation mm. in the order of the Kendi, where I fill you up and invest you with the same movement of thought that I have or that somebody else has. And uh, you don't even have to necessarily be conscious of them, but you're controlled and you become a that's why, just to give a contemporary instance that I think a lot of people would be familiar with, when you read someone like John Webster, uh, John Webster, if you consider him, uh, he, was a, he was a brilliant, brilliant, very, very good theologian. Uh, he's using all sorts of weird words, and he's not speaking classically in many, many, many ways. But everyone recognizes, like, this is something crazy special. Because what is happening in the intellect is that you're, you're participating in his movement of thought and all those habits of knowledge. It doesn't matter the types of words you're saying. Words don't really matter except as to enact that in you and get you into this mm. way. And that's really what's happening when you read someone like Thomas Aquinas, even though for most people today, it's really, really hard to have that unpacked and become conscious and, and like self-possessed of, of that sort of thing. Yeah, maybe. Oh, go ahead, Dale. No, go ahead, brother. I was just, yeah, maybe, maybe one way to, uh, to kind of start on the ground. I think that that's all just, uh, just the descriptions of how theology works, I think are quite fascinating. Uh, 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 but uh, maybe one way to talk about how that starts at the kind of base of the mountain is to see, you know, the more I hear you talk, and I've heard you talk about some of this before, you lectured on some of this for Davenant, I think, earlier this year. Uh, and one of the things that uh, uh, fascinates me is that it seems to me that you you begin to see the first motions of this already in the Bible. Uh, certainly in second in, in second temple and, and as well in, as in second temple interpretation of the Bible, you know the rabbis were all aware that the Bible says you know God changes his mind, God doesn't change his mind. The Bible is intentionally aware that it's doing that. The authors of Scripture are aware that they're doing that, and you start to just say like I can almost ask my child, for instance. I think we've said this on the program before. The Bible says God is a rock, and the Bible says God is love. If I were to ask, you know, my, my daughter Ruby is six years old, if I were to say, which one of these do you think is the most like God, being mm. a rock or being love? She just her her natural instinct about which of those is true at six years old would be the well, love, obviously, because a rock is just, you know, that's that's you, you know, we don't for you, you get where I'm going. But so maybe one way of talking about the the kind of development of the tradition uh, or is to is to talk about what's maybe the first on the one hand, this is a natural, once you once you see the motions being made, you, you begin to think, how could we have ever sliced this up in any other way? Uh, but let's start with the first slice as though it's new. Is there a is there a, a kind of traditional way of getting it the first way to distinguish? You know, here are all these terms about God. Here's all these attributes, these names, or however you want to do it. What would be usually in the tradition the first way to say, here's one big box and here's another? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really the development of those boxes or categories or adequate divisions is what we say uh, in technical theology. And, and, and we mean adequate in a very, very, very technical sense. So 
perhaps if people are familiar with Aristotle and his 10 categories, which adequately divide up created universe and creatum. And so whatsoever you're considering in, in just the created universe, you can boil it down into one of 10 slots. And what you literally have is the universe of creatures and they're falling down into 10 slots. And those are the 10 categories, which are analogically verified in various ways of every single thing that is, which is a creature. Um, a similar sort of thing happens in theology and it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to develop those adequate slices or pictures or divisions of, of theology. In fact, it really doesn't, it, 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 it's finalized in the high medievals. It takes 11, 1200 years for this to be made. And, and by being made, I do mean being made. It is something you have to perform for yourself. It is uh, things you have to make in your mind. And uh, if you're not prepared or if you're not capable or if you don't have enough time to dedicate to the intensity of thought it takes to make those in yourself, then you're always going to be operating with them in sort of artificial way because they're not native to you. Um, theology, becoming a theologian is something you become, something when those categories are made into you. It's not something you're born into, it's something you that's, that's very important. So those development of the categories, as I say, took 11, 1200 years, really takes off when you look at someone like Lombard. It obviously is developed in certain aspects of it very early in the fathers very present in the Greek tradition as well. When we look at all of the possible things that one could say of God, all names of God, we call them divine names. Keep in mind, names of anything, but also names of God are those things that mark or signify or represent thoughts which have been forced out of us by confrontation with reality. So divine names are basically having a, a, a they're, they're rested on two things, as it were, they're rested on one hand on creatures and the other hand is kind of thrust up to God and never actually touching God, but is pointed towards God. And someone like Thomas Aquinas will talk about the distinction between that from which a name is taken, creatures, and that to which a name is imposed, which in this case, it's God. So divine names are all of the possible things we can say of God, which is literally speaking all of creation. Because we don't know God except in the mirror of creatures. And when we consider all of creation, universally speaking, we realize that we can adequately divide names into two negative names and positive names. Negative names are going to be names we say of God with a negative judgment, where we say, this is not. We say, this is not. We don't really say God is not, because we never actually say what God is. God is not, or we can say God is. When we consider negative names, if you reflect adequately enough, you're going to realize that there's also two sorts of negative names we have, and uh, there's not really any a uh, way of conventionally signifying these two categories of negative names in the tradition, but I'd like to talk about 
uh, posterior negative names, which come later in intellectual development and actually are on the back end. Most people don't actually reach, and these posterior negative names are things like simplicity, infinity, and others of that sort. Or we have the prior negative names, which are where most people operate, and these are things like incorporeality or spirituality. Here, how that's saying the same thing, even though it's using a different conventional sign. Things like incorporeality or impassibility. And these prior negative names are those first negations that the mind has to make in order to reach up to God. This is the order of things wherein most people are capable of operating within. It's also where scripture concentrates because it's the first stage of understanding God and not understanding God. This is where we concentrate with lay people and getting them to do. Maybe, maybe the posterior negative names we can start trying to train pastors. Uh, certain pastors are going to be able to do it. Certain pastors perhaps are not going to be able to do it. But this is where professional theologians have to be capacitated and able to perform these negations and be always performing such that people who are down here, as it were, again, no way are we looking down at People who are only able to perform these negative names are perfectly fine because someone else is performing the other negations that they need. They're participating. That's how knowledge works. Positive names are also adequately divided into two, what we call absolute names and relative names. Relative names everyone's familiar with because everyone loves the relative names, things like Lord and Creator. Absolute names are where things really get interesting because this is where we can define what God is. And again, understand what we mean when we say define what God is. We're pointing to things that are similar to God. And when we consider, I know this is a lot of categorization, but this is where it pays off. When we consider the absolute positive names, those things which we affirm of God, absolutely speaking, namely, towards himself rather than towards another. Those are divided into the simple and mixed perfections. Things that are entirely, what they are, entirely similar to God, and things that are only partially similar to God. Things that are entirely similar to God is what people call today the divine attributes. Wisdom, goodness, and others of this sort. Things that are only partially similar to God are what people might call today the metaphorical names. These are names designating the mixed perfections. So they could be things like God is a lion, God is a rock. Those are things that are very obvious to people that those are metaphorical. There's what a rock is and what a lion is can be partially like God, but nonetheless, there's a negative judgment that we have to stick in there to cut off that entire thing that God is, because God's not entirely like that, or rather, that's not entirely like God. What most people aren't familiar with is the fact that those are just kind of more the basic mixed perfections. The other mixed perfections are things like reasoning, laughing, anger, repentance, joy, and many other negative names, or uh, many other uh, names designating mixed perfections, which require 
manipulation and intellectual conscious performance of negative judgments to the essence of what those names mean or what creature those names signify approximately considered. And that's where things begin to get interesting because you start to be able to measure the amount of dissimilitude or the amount of unlikeness that these things are. And so you can evaluate different names are more like God, like you were saying, Joe, your daughter immediately recognizes God is more like love, less like a rock. We start to perform all of those less like this, more like that at a very, very, very highly developed level. And that's how you increase people's knowledge of what God is positively and definitionally, even mm. though it's always still analogically because it's all in a mirror. Why is joy a mixed perfection? It has to do with the specific difference in how we uh, define joy, uh, not just randomly. Of course, we don't just randomly specify, right. well, this is what we're going to call joy. But joy is an operation whose uh, essence, just like any operation's essence, is defined by the underlying uh, proximate power, which supplies the place of the genus of the operation. Ah. And the specific difference uh, is taken from the proper object of the operation. And there's some aspect of potency in the proper object of joy right. that is not proper to God because God, of course, has no potency at all. And so that's a very, very, very technical. I mean, we're like six negations deep at that point. Yeah. Like, you don't need to know. Just say, <laughs> God, yeah, God has joy. The worst, like, the, worst the worst heresy is not making joy an absolute perfection. Yeah, uh, you, you, know, you can do worse. Life, life will go on. No. <laughs> so so ryan i want to return back i am i am trying to listen to you very carefully brother and i have a limitation in my ability to make the moves as quickly as the language is falling from your mouth <laughs> uh so forgive me that i'm slow and i do not possess the ability to track well um but i i'm desperately trying to um it's interesting the way that you talk about when we say God is love, we are using a concept that was developed by creatures that then sort of reaches up to God in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and in order to properly understand how that all works, you talked about dividing all of creation. Mm -hmm. So all of creation is sort of where it's at, tumbling down, funneling into these 10 categories that Aristotle talked about. Um, tell, I would love to hear, if you remember them all, uh, talk to me a little bit more about that. I'm deeply interested in what you mean by that. Because I have a vision, you painted a picture in my mind of what you were trying to say, but I don't have the habit of thinking that way. Totally. Yeah, that's a great question and probably a great clarification. I probably misspoke. The Aristotle's categories, the 10 categories I mentioned, were only an illustration. So they're not okay. 10 categories when we move to theology. That's a, that's a great uh, thing to clarify. But like what Aristotle performs, and this momentous event in the history of philosophical thought where he engorges all of creaturely reality, squishes it down 
boils it down and you have the nuts and bolts of, of creatures. This unbelievable power of, of mind to be able to enact that. It's just staggering. A similar type of event happens in theology gradually, but it really starts to pick up steam in the 11th, 12th, 13th century or so. It takes, again, a, a long time to develop. Uh, all theologians have always, well, all significant theologians, uh, at least, have always been aware that there's unevenness in the positive names we say of God. Again, we're, we're leaving relative names aside right now. No one cares about relative absolute names that we affirm of God, there's, une there's unevenness there. We recognize that intuitively and all people can apprehend that. God is a rock is not the same thing as saying God is love. One is weighted differently. And you hear I'm measuring the dissimilitude or the difference between them. And this is, by the way, I have to say, this is incredibly important to understand. This is not random. This is not made up. This is not how I feel or how I got out of bed this morning. I just decided this was going to be. This is verifiable by creaturely reality itself. Even though we can't come up against God and check, nonetheless, I can measure the difference between mm. creatures and perform properly the things I need to to evaluate them. And all of this are independent standards of knowledge, as it were, just broadly speaking. So uh, theologians have always been aware of that, but especially in the, in the uh, high medieval period, and especially with the introduction of Lombard sentences, you can read a lot about this. All of the bachelor commentators, when they, uh, when they become theologians, they, they, they're made to be theologians. They all hit, uh, I sent D22, the distinction 22 of the first book of the sentences, where Peter Lombard quotes from Augustine and uh, Ambrose, mm -hmm who uh, mentioned this uh, distinction between simple and mixed perfections, what later become called simple and mixed perfections. They're not called simple and mixed perfections till many, many years, uh, even a, a several generations later. Uh, technically speaking, actually, this is a, a point that maybe might interest some people. Uh, Ambrose is misquoted. There's a massive textual problem and Lombard basically like butchers Ambrose and squishes him. And, but a Ambrose becomes this, massive authority figure to <laughs> demonstrate upon the authority of the father that this distinction is valid. And then eventually it comes along. And really the one, the, the, the two guys who perfect this distinction are Anselm and then Thomas. Hmm. Anselm deals with this in Monologian 15 uh, and Proslogian 5, where he talks about how everything except for relative formalities, relative forms. If you look out at all of the creaturely forms that you will ever come across or could ever be, they're all divided into two relative forms or absolute forms. You, you hear the categories I mentioned before, right? Relative forms or absolute forms. He then says, when you leave aside all relative forms and just consider the absolute forms, he says, if you look at every single one, you will realize that they divide into two types, two categories. They reduce down to two things. And these are the aspects of simple and mixed perfections. Either they are pure perfection and no imperfection contained in what they are, or they are mixed of potency and act. And I'm 
fuzzing what Anselm says. Technically, these are developments that Thomas Aquinas himself develops, uh, and then later uh, Dominicans uh, after Thomas. It, it takes many generations to develop these types of moves. And then by the time you get in the early modern period, sorry for the history lesson, but by the time you get in the early modern period, uh, things have just entirely collapsed. And theology is just absolutely wrecked. And no one's operating in these types of ways, be, uh, ways at that point. And so theology becomes inadequate. By inadequate, I don't mean inadequate how people use inadequate today. I mean the technical sense of inadequacy of the science. They're not cutting reality at the joints and thus there's slippage. And when there's slippage, then everyone talks past each other. And you see this first, especially start to happen among Protestants, you have to be honest. It happens among Protestants first, primarily not because they're stupid, but because they're concerned to give lay people things that they can actually handle and manipulate. And so starting out, they're resting on all the work of prior theologians and they're just crunching it down into helpful handles, helpful ways of thinking, helpful ways, pedagogical or heuristic distinctions in theology, like the distinction between the incommunicable and communicable attributes. Right. Like that's a manageable distinction that I can, that I can manipulate and, and not cause errors. Most people, especially lay people, when they manipulate that, they're going to be beset with all sorts of errors, not because it's a bad distinction, but because it cuts reality across the grain rather than at the joints. And as you start to operate only with those types of uh, mm. inadequate categories, then theology just becomes abysmal. Mm. Because now you no longer have the distinction between negative and positive names. And so we don't understand what the divine simplicity is. We don't understand what infinity is. We don't understand what spirituality is. These are all negative judgments. And then there's rise of metaphysical names and things like that and then there's rejection. you see in the in the modern period a uh you 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 mentioned and i think this is just worth saying out loud for a minute because you know part of the background of this conversation of course is that there's all these doctrine of god controversies you know especially recently we've had you know this sort of jeff johnson owen strachan debacle uh and the predictable sort of army of uh you know neo thomists online sort of freaking out about strachan and johnson um nevertheless one of the things i've heard you say before and maybe it's just worth pausing because that discourse uh uh, deeply falls afoul, I think, of what you're saying right now, which is that in a lot of philosophical discourse, I, and I've done this myself, uh, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm still not totally sure what's wrong with it, which is why you're on the program. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it sounds to me like one of the things you where you think a lot of error slips in is what is classically considered a negative name like simplicity, like, like spirit, incorporeal, infinity, what you see, especially in, uh, you see it throughout the early modern period, but one place, especially in the in the 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 the, uh, the world of analytic theology, these become especially positive things. Yeah. God is infinite. God is simple. Uh, God is, uh, et you know, eternal. You know, these sorts of things wind up becoming their own kind of. The, the idea is to get the mind when we say this to kind of gesture toward a positive plenitude. And it sounds to me like one of the things you're, you, you would want to say is what's, 
mostly going on in the tradition when these names are mentioned is actually a negation of a thing in creation. And your mind is not supposed to sort of jump over the, the finite infinite boundary land on the other side and say, oh, now we're in divine simplicity or divine infinity. You never do that. <laughs> is that, is, and even in the, on the kind of classical side of things, I think these are, it sounds like these are spoken about positively. So maybe just your comments on that. Yeah, that's uh, one of the most significant errors of the last several hundred years. And it has only uh, come more and more to the fore with the, uh, with the rise of classical theism, which uh, by and large uh, is a mixed bag in the sense of there's good things and important things about it. Uh, unfortunately, much of it is inadequate. Again, I'm speaking technical sense of inadequacy. Right. Here. Um, but also in, beyond being inadequate uh, is quite frequently extremely errant. For the precise reasons that you're saying, they're treating negative names like positive names. So what you need to understand is when we say something is a negative name versus a positive name, I'm gesturing to a number of things, among which are different intellectual movements, reverse intellectual movements, so to speak. Consider moving the mind away from something, which is what it is to make a negative judgment in the intellect. That's like the reality that is a negation, is this re-motion, movement backward, movement away from seeing the subject in a formal way. That's what a negative judgment is. Versus an affirmative name, an affirmative judgment, where you move towards seeing the subject in the formal light of the predicate. So you advert towards the predicate that you're affirming and you say, aha, I perceive the subject is in there. Zhoosh, and you synthesize and unite whereas you divide. So composition and division is how someone like Thomas Aquinas will, will talk about it, to uh, bring together your entirely empty subject because you never have knowledge of the subject except in the formal light of the predicate. One of the most important insights of Thomas philosophy, and it's, it's not just purely Thomas, but it's very, very significantly developed in, in Thomas Aquinas. You do, this is why we say we don't know God except in the formal light of the predicate, which it, whose entirety of content is filled up with creatures. Mm -hmm. So you think you're knowing God. You're not knowing God. You're looking at a creature and you're uniting your mind to that creature or you're pulling your mind and severing it away from that creature. So when I get all really start hulking out and get really angry about people not recognizing the distinction between negative and positive names. This is because people are uniting their mind to precisely what God is not. They should be severing from their thoughts. And they're mm. doing this in ways that are not only errant and wrong, but incredibly dangerous, especially when we start talking about the posterior negative names, which is where everybody is interested in talking about things like simplicity, especially and then infinity and eternity, which is what a lot of the relational theists are combating is these posterior, posterior negative names. They don't understand that all of this only signifies negative motion of the mind away from composition, for instance, when he talks about simplicity. So I'm looking at the reality, the thing that is 
compositeness, mm-hmm. which by the way is not necessarily a thing, but is a formality of the mind itself is constructed and harvested from creaturely reality. We can leave that to one side. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thing, compositeness, this formality that I've highly refined and developed, and by the way, which has many instantiations, because there's many types of composition. And ultimately speaking, I'm negating the composition of essay and essentia, being in essence. And I'm pulling away from seeing God in the formal light of composition. And that is what it is to do simplicity, to perform simplicity. Um, I often think about uh, as an analogy or illustration for people to understand the dist- or begin to understand a little bit of the distinction here between negative and positive names. Positive names are adjectives. Negative mm. names are adverbs. By adjectives, I mean positive names inform us or describe what God is. Again, analogically with negatives. But nonetheless, they're what people think of when they say, oh yeah, God is, God is this. this. This is an adjective, a descriptor. Negative names are not descriptors. They are adverbs that describe acts that we perform in ourselves for our own purposes because our minds are inadequate or too small to wrap ourselves around God. And so we have to account for the fact that we're not able to close the gap on God when we conceive him in some creature. And so I'm performing a negative adjustment for that. And then I'm signifying that with an exterior word like simplicity, infinity, and others of that sort. And that's describing an adverb that I performed, a verb, a thing, a movement that I performed. And in no way, is it revealing positive things about God? Uh, broadly speaking, there, there's some technical aspects that are 15 miles down the road where we do, we can squish, uh, we can squeeze water out of rocks. Uh, you can squeeze positive knowledge out of negative names. It does so happen, but most people, that's uh, quite a bit too technical and we, we would want to leave that to one side. But yes, yeah. you have to understand mm. this distinction. And by the way, it has to be said, this is a distinction that Protestantism has never gotten fully right. And it's always from the beginning had slippage on, which has increased over time. So early on, it's okay, especially in a no- significant number of the Reformed Orthodox. And there's some disagreement. There, 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 there's issues. There's, there, these are very, very technical things. Um, but very, very early, you see especially, this is where inadequate divisions of theology come back to bite you. When you talk about the incommunicable and communicable attributes, guess where Protestants slot the negative names? Incommunicable, right? Incommunicable. Yeah. Which are more like what God is, right? Yes. Yeah. No. Well, no, I mean, that's, that's what, <laughs> no, that's no, what no, your no, mind is going to wind up doing. That's what yes, mind, yeah. that's the issue. And then you have this massive uh, pushback, like the 20th century. Oh, no, we, we don't want to talk about all the metaphysical predicates because that's just Greek. That's just Greek. We want to talk about the perfections of God, which is a totally accurate critique for people who have just thrust a whole bunch of negative judgments up into actually what God is and screwed up their theology proper project. Like, that's a really, really important thing to do. It's interesting. Go ahead. 
Dale and I have been talking in the last couple of weeks uh, in my Davenant class, we just went through Lewis miracles because it's a piece as a piece of rhetoric uh, where the class I'm teaching is on sort of approaches to defending the faith. And, you know, what are, what are some helpful sort of rhetorical ways to approach defending the faith? And Lewis has this fascinating discussion in there about how um, by, by his time, you know, this, this tendency you're talking about is interesting because Lewis is writing about sort of common British um, common British uh, sentimentality when it comes to speaking about divine things. And by his time, he sort of talks about how the common British sense is that we can all talk about a divine force. The more negated out of an actual concrete thing God is, the more sort of respectable among gentlemen can we, uh, can we think that we're being, and, and what he argues is we, we think we're being reverent here. We're being really reverent by making God this kind of more like a nebulous oblong blur. But it sets up this very interesting discussion where he, he actually says something somewhat similar, I think, or, or overlapping to what you, what you say, and that is that uh, part of what he wants to argue in a sense is that uh, we are the negation. Our being is the negation of which God is the concrete. And so the problem with language and then trying to throw it up into God is not that God is so abstract and our language is just too concrete to go get to God. It's that he is too concrete and our language is too abstract. Our language is all over the place because we are the vaporous things. Uh, and actually, it would be better. In, it, it, what we need to develop is the idea that God is living. <laughs> it's actually that he's yeah. so he's so living he's, and so pure. God that I can't, that my language is too sinuous. I'm the negate, you know, the negation of the negation actually happens in a weird, funny way. There's a negation of an, if, if our being is a form of negation and then we negate our being in the negative names, uh, that's perhaps where you generate quote, quote, positive uh, 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 insight out of that. But I think this is crucial because so many of the philosophical conundra that come up these days, a lot of the debates we're seeing are, are generated around philosophical conundra that, infor that, 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 that are thrown out there when the mind makes the move. So it's one thing for the mind to say, God is all this positive content, but not in a way that implies this composition. I'm going to fully remove any notion of composition from how God is this positive content. Uh, but what I'm not doing is then saying simplicity is like this positive image sort of generated out of that negative content that then I shove all of the attributes into because then you generate all these philosophical problems like your modal collapse arguments and you're this and yeah. you're that. And it sounds like one of the things uh, that you're arguing is that the, the judgments kind of go up the ladder, but they cease right before the point that all of those problems get generated. They're ungenerated by by the ceasing of the mind from making a certain judgment about shoving these things into sort of infinity, as it were. Uh, yeah. 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 You can't, well, yeah, this is very difficult to explain, but when we say God is simple, what we're, what we're saying is it's true to negate composition of God. So the positive way of saying simplicity of God is saying that negative judgment we made is true. Hmm. And, and the negative judgment that. is that he's not composite. That's the negative judgment. Yes. Okay. 
Okay. And when you realize that, you realize God does not appear in that line. What you're saying is this intellectual move is correct. Hmm. Yes. And you're just slotting the name God in there as like a handy dandy reference of what you're ultimately talking about. Uh, broadly speaking, there, there, there are other ways that one could affirm simplicity of God. For instance, positive way of saying simplicity of God, another one is uh, say God is simple. What I mean is God is so full of ipsum essay or being itself that my negative judgment is verified of him. And as considered is this dense, this dense, you know, you know, words are lacking, this density of perfection, um, as it is in God, that's positive. Hmm. It is indeed positive. So that's how Scotus does it, right? So Scotus, uh, Duns Scotus says uh, simplicity and infinity and, and names like that are positive names. Is he contrary to the rest of the tradition? In no way, he's considering how the negative judgments or what we call, as Thomas, the rationes, quomodo rationes or dicantur in re, how they are said to be in re, uh, or how the mind is verified by the thing, which it does not come into contact with, and as it were, when we're talking about God, because we're not there yet. Yeah. to live our life and die um, but nonetheless what God is verifies that performance of the human being so that's another positive way of saying simplicity so there are positive elements but that's not in any way what people are saying today when they say positive God is simple and uh, that's why Thomas Aquinas refuses except for one or two very very small places in his work to ever speak of these in terms of positive names which you can do we need to think of them only in terms of negative names for these types of reasons, which is all of these are correct things to say. All of these are uh, really important to understand and know, but most people don't need to know them. You just need to know so, that you need to sever yourself from these creaturely realities insofar as they are dissimilar to God. So Thomas talks about in, in the Summa Contra Cantilis, uh, book one, I think it's something like chapter nine. Uh, when we confront creature, the creaturely order as such, we perceive similitude and dissimilitude simultaneously and in fact they're not side by side they're kind of stacked and enlaced and ultimately at the bottom is ipsum esse or the actus ascendi of the creature which is non-subsistent and so creature creatures at their most perfect with respect to their being are struck with dissimilitude which is why latter and four says there's an ever greater dissimilitude that must be found in ever in every similitude but at any rate what you're doing is you're removing yourself from the dissimilitude and you're moving yourself toward the similitude. And the powerful theologians, the good theologians, and what people try to uh, need to try to learn is to enlace those apps, those positive and negative names properly, such that they sync up and do what they're supposed to do as the entire mind becomes in a proper place with respect to God. That's really what's being done here. Your mind is coming into a proper place or frame of thought and standing still. 
to God. Standing in the facts. That's what Thomas means when he says how a ratio is in re, how a judgment is verified by the thing, is to be, yeah, to be with it, to be gripped with the real, to be possessed of things and all, all, all those sorts of mm. metaphors that one can speak of. And that's what you're trying to perform with respect to God, mm. even though you're, you're never actually confronting him. Yeah. We talked about, uh, Joe brought up Owen Strachan and Johnson. And, and I mean, it's just the thing that people are talking about in our circles today. Um, and what I'm, what's becoming very clear to me as I listen to you talk um, is that there is a certain level of, and I want to be careful not to make any judgments about the motivations of hearts here, because what do I know? Uh, but there does seem to be a lack of humility before what we're talking about, as if they sort of grab a hold of, you know, the doctrine of God and sling it around in a slingshot and aim it at their theological opponent. Uh, which doesn't properly appreciate the weightiness of what they're talking about. Um, and I wonder if we are trying to habituate a certain way to think about God mm. with proper categories and distinctions and slicing up and looking at the reality of the creation in order to make the mental moves that we need to make to say something true, true, as true as we can say it about God, what would you say uh, to the people that are on the periphery of these sort of conversations, which uh, that quote unquote scholars of, on the doctrine of God are having, what would you say to them as a way to um, sort of learn to be more quiet and reverent when they start to speak about what you're talking about. Is there something that we can do for the modern church in America with access to social media and Twitter and all the things, blogs and podcasts, uh, to where we could prompt them to be to, to think more clearly about the gravity of what they're saying and the hesitancy to say things so forcefully or positively about what they think the doctrine of God means. In other words, Ryan, what I'm really trying to say is, how can we tell everyone you really don't know with the, the power of the thing that you're playing with and you should calm down a little bit and maybe not crank out book after book after book or conference after conference after conference. Maybe we just need to sit back and realize we have no idea what we're saying, really, really. Uh, and that's very hard because you're dealing with ego and you're dealing with silly little idiosyncratic personality things. And you're also dealing with celebrity culture and you're dealing with money from books. Um, so how do we humble ourselves before God? And it seems like that is actually the first move. The first move, I think, is to go, okay, I have all my life considered that God is this thing. And that's not necessarily wrong, but when I think that way, I realize that I am not getting there really. And so I should just, you know, shut up and listen and read. But for the people that are that are involved in the controversy, 
that is probably not an option. I think at this point they're too invested in the sides have been sort of staked out and people are invested. So how do we make people just slow down and be cool and collect yourself and move out from a, a seat of utter reverence and humility for discussing this? What do, how do we do that in the modern church? <laughs> yeah, I... <laughs> I understand it's a big question, brother, and I'm sorry, but... Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this for years and years, observing... Yeah, we're, we're in a strange age. Hmm. I think it needs to be said that there's a very small handful of people in history who have said God is simple, by which I mean who have said or performed what it means to say God is simple. And they were the Thomas Aquinas's of the world, which none of us are. Yeah. 99% of all us normal people, as it were, never knew about these types of things and were perfectly fine. Uh, you don't. You don't need to stress out about it. It's going to be all right. right. It's important to recognize and just be more settled with who you are. You're calling before God. You're calling before men. Your place. Uh, we're in an unfortunate scenario because just speaking incredibly broadly uh, is a hugely general comment. Many professors of theology who uh, are entrusted with the responsibility who ought to be able to perform these types of uh, mental moves and uh, be capable in these ways are not. In fact, they're quite the opposite and they're deeply mm. wrong. And so we have to solve that because that's horrendously devastating 50 years down the road or when you train a pastor to think a certain way, who then trains his people to think a certain way, it does yes. hit you yes. and it is devastating for your soul. Um, but outside the academy, outside being like occupying a monkery somewhere, you want right. to be Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> like, go do that, man, we need Thomas Aquinas. But outside of that, you need to be talking about simplicity. Why do you need to be doing that? It's just not, it's not helpful. It's not healthy. It's, uh, so I always like to think of, uh, the grandma test. Yeah. My grandma has no idea about simplicity of God, infinity of God, eternity of God. She has no idea. She knows a lot about God and she's perfectly fine. She's a very holy, godly woman. And, just profound saint. I would be an absolute jerk and many other more violent words, which I probably ought to say, uh, mm. if I were to start sitting down and lecturing my grandma that she doesn't know about divine simplicity. Like, just stop being a jerk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so try to pass, see if you, if you're passing the grandma test or not and recognize that vast majority of people don't need to hear these types of things. Yeah. One helpful point that I think is uh, very practically useful is to recognize that there's two categories of negative names. One category of which you should focus on getting people to do things like incorporeality 
and impassibility, which is where scripture concentrates as well, because those are, well, this is important to understand. It's very difficult to explain, but nonetheless, it's difficult to understand. If you remember the two categories of absolute positive names, the simple and mixed perfections, the prior negative names, incorporeality and passability, work in conjunct with these. So when we say God is a lion, there's negative moves that you have to make right there. And all of those negatives fall in or adequately reduce to this category of negative names. And the simple perfections are working conjunct with the posterior negative names, things like simplicity, infinity, and others of that sort. And the only thing, the only thing that you need to get people to do there, you don't need to get them to understand the real distinction between essay and essentia. You don't need to get them to understand how infinity is a negation of how form is constricted by matter and all these sorts of things. You just need to get them to understand that when they think of love, they're not thinking of love as much as God is actually love. And you hear that move away, all I'm doing in my mind is a little negative move. And there are lots of different aspects to that. For instance, we don't say there are any accidents in God, but rather all these simple perfections we say God is substantially. Just like we don't say that God is ipsum esse, just as ipsum esse is with us and among creatures, namely non-subsistent. Rather, God is going to be said to be subsistent essay, not substandent, but subsistent, all these types of moves, and then many other negative judgments that we have to make. All people need to know is just have a reckoning with the fact that the things you think God is similar towards, he is, mm-hmm. but he's more than that. Yeah. So all you need to invest people with. And then these other prior category of negative means you need to get them to do recognize that God doesn't have a body. God doesn't have a body because body, to have a body means you have to be more constricted and less perfect. God is not so constricted. Use the types of language that Joe was using, very non-standard respect to the classical tradition, but perfectly adequate. God is denser or more concrete versus we're more wispy and abstract. That might not be wise language in every scenario, but it's perfectly meaningful. And what I meant by that is perfectly true. What Joe meant by that, C.S. Lewis meant by that is perfectly true. And get them to understand that you don't want to say God is a body because God is more than a body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By the way, is the same type of negative move I'm making up here in a more complex and nuanced fashion. Mm -hmm. God is always greater than that which can be thought. God is always more. We don't ever make negative judgments of God because God is less or losing. When Mm -hmm. we pull things away from God, we're not emptying him out. We're recognizing that they have been emptied out of God. Yeah, and I think it's full to squish in thimbles. I think it's probably helpful for just to remind people, and and maybe I'm I'm gonna say, say to you how I hear that, and you tell me if this is right that that in, in, in the classical language, uh, 
a finite participant, when we think about uh, being as a finite participation in God's infinite, you know, sort of act of being, uh, creation is already a sort of negation. Uh, I mean, that's the, that's the, the creation itself. That's how the mind replicates the event of creation, as it were, the spreading of creatures out from God is, is represented or reiterated in the intelligence of a creature with a negative mood, yes. Right, and that, and that I think once we, once we see that, uh, the negative names, in a sense, are, they're, they're not a movement. They're reversing that. Yes, yeah, exactly. They're not, it, 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 it's, it's not. Which, by the way, that's the return to God. Hmm. The exit from God and the redatus, the, the return to God. That's why yes. we're climbing up the Mount of Sinai. That's what negative names are for. They're bringing us back into God. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, this has, uh, do you have any other questions, Joe or, or Ryan? Um, is there anything that is pressing that you want to say on the names of God? Okay. Maybe the last thing to say, or just, or just one thing to say, and I, and I want to be cautious here because, you know, as, as Dale said, who am I? Uh, QED for me. Uh, mm -hmm. But the more I look at these controversies and the, and the more I hear people, especially just as part of, it seems like the American reformed habit, it's like we throw around heresy labels and get in these Twitter ruckuses, like it's just in our DNA at such a, it's such a, it's very American. <laughs> I think it's, I think that's, that's a huge part of the flavor of what drives theology, very reactionary, very quick. The heresy charges fly very, very quickly. Um, but the more I've, you know, tried myself to to hear an older theological grammar and to try and think about it outside of all of these controversies, mm -hmm. I, I feel like I keep coming back to and I'm struck and restruck again. Just how, in some ways, embarrassing some of these conversations are. Like a lot of a lot of the guys who are on Twitter, and I think this is important to say out loud because the rhetoric really does need to be defanged. A lot of the guys who are the most vocal about issues in the doctrine of God on both sides, on both sides of the debate, Owen Strachan, and we could name people maybe on the classical side of the debate as well, but really do not know the tradition that well. Uh, uh, they don't even know the meaning of the judgments that they're negating, uh, but they're doing it very loudly and so all the attention on these issues uh, is thrown at a conversation that is so malformed. Uh, and I think part of what needs to be said is, you know, the point here is not to just mic drop on Strachan and own anybody with hashtag facts and logic or something like that. <laughs> but at some point, it is important to stare people in the eyeball and say, you do not know what you are talking about. And there are people, there are people on the other side of the debate responding to him who do not fully know what they are talking about. And I think that needs to be said and heard, humbly heard, because mm -hmm. it is in fact true. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, 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 and I say that not because like what Owen Strachan is not going to listen to our podcast. I'm pretty sure that's fine. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but I say that because uh, largely because I think 
the 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 noise. Uh, I, I was thinking of this recently. I, I was saying something to my wife, uh, processing a previous experience in my life, and I said something to the effect of, uh, "How do you not believe the person who's screaming? How do you not believe it's it, especially if you're a laity, especially if you're a sheep, and your pastor starts screaming about something, the people out there who are threatening the whatever, and 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 the, the trusted Twitter person is coming and putting these big lines, and they're screaming. And it's very hard psychologically, especially for those who don't know, it's very hard psychologically not to think you're kind of hardwired a little bit to think, uh, well, and somebody's that dramatic, of course, you got to trust them. A big thing is happening. That's fire. They're yelling fire. Yeah. And I I think there's something pastorally. It's very correct. It's very correct to pursue truth and to avoid error. But there's something very, very dangerous about making that that level of dramatic judgment, that level of dramatic rhetorical posturing. It seems to me inevitably crowns ignorance and makes ignorance actually the very basis upon which we have a conversation. And I think part of what we want to do here, I mean, again, the goal here has not been to read Strachan tweets and throw bombs at them. The goal here is actually, I think, to do a a positive discussion, like just just talk about these distinctions. And I think what we can do, and as much as our minds can grasp them, is just to see that they're helpful. You know, as I hear you talk, Ryan, I, I keep coming back to, this just sounds like the Bible already started making these kinds of distinctions. And all we are doing right now is continuing a conversation that the Bible and just the human mind, a conversation the human mind naturally has, and that the Bible is already demonstrably engaged in, and it is just the development of the fusion of those two things as a discourse, as human questions and human human vantage points at reality are thrown at what this means for talking about God. And that's very, when I look at it that way, it's quite natural. Uh, and yet it makes sense that the, that discussion is going to get to a point that's very technical and formal, nevertheless, where there's things writing on it and errors really do cash out in a certain way. Um, uh, but all of that is being, it, it's being, it's being, it, it's being negotiated with in such a juvenile way. And I think that's sad and I think it needs to be said. And I uh, also think it needs to stop. <laughs> yes, you're here. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and I think this is part of one of the things I love about having Ryan at Davenant is that it's so wonderful, I think, to get into this material in a way that isn't just about trying to, and this is the way so many people study theology these days is, I wanna have answers to all the things people are arguing about on Facebook. So let me go read Turretin. And that's yeah. just a horrible way to study theology. Uh, go ahead. Well, and, and, and let me say something. Um, and then Ryan, if I'll let you have the last word, brother, um, just to, to build on what Joe is saying, a uh, couple months ago, Ryan and I were just zooming, chatting about this um, because I looked at him and I'm like, Ryan, tell me what God is <laughs> uh, because I'm in at a point and it would take a long time to articulate where I'm at mentally with answering that question. Uh, but one practical thing that has worked well for me as it is sort of seeping down into layers of my thought 
from that conversation you and I had was just how serious this is and how much I just didn't really respect it that much. I, I went to seminary and I got the scholastic tradition and I, and I got the correct distinctions according to the systematic theologians that I studied. I wrote papers on this stuff and I thought I had it all sort of categorized neatly and sorted out. But just from a few conversations with you, my entire conception of God had to be first put into this little tiny bubble over here that I actually knew anything at all. What's even if that is a bubble might not even be seen. It's so little. Um, but what that frees me to do is trust that what God has equipped me with as a man is the thing that he is engaging me with in order for me to understand what he has said and revealed about himself. And he has given me a tradition to fall back on to use in that pursuit. So it's a whole life dedicated to understanding my God. Uh, and that when it's uh, when it's approached that way as sort of like in my closet, humbly like bowing before the greatness of God going, please help me. I don't know anything um, that does wonders for my personal spiritual development. And what I think is missing in the controversies is precisely what Joe said, that that move. Are you really trying to know God or are you just trying to formulate language that would tell everybody else that you know God? Uh, and so it seems like what we should do when we encounter the teachings of our fathers and the Bible um, is just to recognize our limitations. That's all, man. <laughs> uh, who are we? We are little vapor. Um, and if we can even get at a tiny bit of it here, uh, then praise God, hallelujah. And then when we die and go see God's face, uh, we're just gonna, it's just gonna be amazing. So yeah, that's the last thing I have to say. And Ryan, I'll leave, I'll leave you with the last word, brother. That's great. <laughs> what, to, what to end with? Uh, yeah. A quote from the, uh, the great Robert Bellarmine, who, uh, of whom all Protestants are the greatest fans, is perhaps apt at this point. Hmm. Uh, in his work, The Ascensions of the Mind to God, inspired by Bonaventura's Journey of the Mind into God. He says at the beginning, all the divine names that we make are constituting or forging ladders or ascensions in the soul. These dynamic upswellings and springs into God. And he says the goal of theology and divine naming is to make all of those springs like this great ascending in the soul as like an actuality in life. And if mm -hmm. you don't, you're going to, he says, be just like the prodigal, far from the fatherland, far from the father. So mm -hmm. our experience, your experience, Dale, my experience as well of stress and tension and not closing that gap is part of constituting that dynamic upswelling because you've not closed yet with God because we've not met him yet face to face. And that's a natural and even desirable, 
desirable way of dealing with the names of God, recognizing and then closing with him in love because you're returning to him. You're, you're making these ascensions in the soul. This part of my soul needs to send up to God like a rocket, launching this rocket, launching this rocket until my entire being is launched up to God and I reach the end. And that yeah. is what it is to reckon with negative names, affirmative names, all of these names, and to mm. recognize that trying to close that distance and being desirous of it is in many ways precisely the point that you've reached. And then being able to function in a healthy way out of that in a non-frantic yeah. way, in a non-agnostic way as well. Because mm. when we launch rockets out into outer space, nobody's stressing out the fact that they've not yet reached the planet we've launched them toward. Yeah. yeah. It's going there. Yeah. And, uh, being content with that and al allowing yourself to just kind of hang out in this life, just pilgrims on a journey. That's Pilgrim it, faith, you mean? Well, that's a that's a good a note to end on as any. Uh, it's uh, a delight to have everybody with us today. You can check us out on Facebook and our Facebook group. Uh, what we're going to do is, of course, have Ryan to we're going to come back and uh, talk about uh, keep continue talking about these distinctions in God. And what we'll want to do over the next two weeks uh, is is move our discussion from talking about how we how we make the this kind of classical what we're we're really discussing today is God's unity, uh, the 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 way we talk about the one God, and what we'll perhaps do over the next two weeks is slowly gesture our conversation to how does how does theology build in such a way from that unity to wind up saying the divine triunity in the right way, uh, uh, in a way that's clarifying to the mind. And so we'll we'll do that over the next two weeks, just in time for Advent, uh, uh, unless you're uh, 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 a strict adherent of the uh, regulative principle right, of worship, in which case it'll be uh, just, <laughs> just in time for whatever Sunday happens to mark your calendar. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Dale, I love you, brother. Love you too, brother. And uh, we'll see y'all next time.